the Protestant reformers engaged in a reform of the church calendar that during the Middle Ages had become bloated with numerous feast days and festivals honoring various saints and Mary. Many of these became occasions for laziness and licentiousness, days of sin in the name of sanctity. And among many reformers, a consensus emerged to to simplify the calendar with the primary focus being on the weekly Lord's Day and then five evangelical feast days that recalled significant events in the life of Christ. These were Christmas to celebrate his birth, Good Friday, his death, Easter, his resurrection, Ascension, his return to heaven, and Pentecost, his pouring out of the Holy Spirit from heaven. Now, last week was Ascension Sunday, and we had some focus upon Christ's return to heaven, which we confess in the creed with the words, He ascended into heaven. Today is Pentecost, so we will focus on His pouring out of the Spirit from heaven and what it means to confess, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. Our foundational text will be part of the account of Pentecost in Acts 2, but we'll also look at other passages to help us understand what was taking place in that great event that can be considered the nativity of the Christian church. And our message will be organized around five Ps. First of all, promise. Second, prayer. Third, Pentecost. Fourth, purpose. And fifth, power. And through this study, we'll seek to deepen our understanding of Pentecost as it does inform our confession that we believe in the Holy Spirit. We begin with promise. Just prior to his ascension, Jesus said to his disciples, we read in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so one thing we know about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit was the promise of the Father that the apostles had heard about from Jesus. Now one account of disciples hearing about the Holy Spirit from Jesus is found in John 14, 16 through 18. Jesus says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And we note several things in this passage. First of all, the Holy Spirit is referred to as another helper. And that means he is going to be a helper like Jesus that will help them carry on the work that Jesus began among them. He's also identified as the spirit of truth that the world cannot receive. And that is because the unbelieving world is not attuned to the spirit of truth. Therefore, the world constantly comes up short on matters of ultimate truth. We see it all around us, and it should not surprise us. Thirdly, we see that the Holy Spirit will dwell with and in believers. And fourthly, we are told that Jesus will come to them by the Holy Spirit. And so later on in his letter to the Philippians, Paul will speak of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. And so we understand that Jesus dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. 
In Acts 1, Jesus tells his disciples that this promise of the Holy Spirit will be fulfilled in them very soon. So what are they to do? Well, they're told in verse 4, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. Don't leave Jerusalem, wait. Now they know that there is much ministry to be done. There's much activity in which they could engage, but Jesus tells them to wait. You see, they need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for that ministry to be effective. So they need to wait until that promised Spirit comes upon them. That brings us to our second point, and that is prayer. The disciples obeyed Jesus by staying in Jerusalem and waiting. But how did they wait? We read in Acts 1, verses 12 through 14, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplications with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Well, what was it the disciples were doing while they waited? They continued with one accord in prayer. And this does tell us something important. What is the proper response to the promises of God? When we read those promises and we understand that they apply to us, how do we respond? Well, we don't respond with inactivity. We don't have some passive passive resignation that we justify a submission to God's sovereignty in which we do believe. No, we pray in light of the promises. Jesus had tied the promise of the Holy Spirit to prayer during his earthly ministry. Luke 11, beginning at verse 9, Jesus is speaking. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So here the general principle of prayer is specifically related to praying for the Holy Spirit. And the implication is that even if if sinful fathers will give good gifts to their children, how much will our perfect Father give the good gift of the Holy Spirit that He has promised to his spiritual children. This embryonic church was obedient to Jesus as they, men and women alike, gathered in united prayer for the Spirit that Jesus promised was coming. And that brings us then thirdly to Pentecost. Their answers were, pray- were their prayers were answered at Pentecost. Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues 
as the Spirit gave them utterance. Jesus fulfilled his promise by sending the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, what was significant about that day? We think of it, of course, as the day in which the Holy Spirit was poured out, but it had significance and meaning prior to that. Did this just happen to be the day on which the Lord poured out the Spirit? I don't think so. If you asked a Jew in that time about the significance of Pentecost, you would likely have received two answers. What was Pentecost? What did it mean? Well, first of all, it was an agricultural feast, the middle of three annual festivals prescribed in the Old Testament. In Acts 24:16, it's in Exodus 24:16, it's even called the feast of harvest. Each year on this day, the first fruits of the wheat harvest were offered up to Yahweh both in gratitude for his provision and in prayerful anticipation of the full harvest to come. So it was first of all a first fruits harvest festival, but secondly, there was further religious significance of Pentecost. Our word Pentecost is taken from the Greek word, which means 50th. 50th. And the name derives from the fact that it falls 50 days after Passover. And that is why it is called in the Old Testament also the Feast of Weeks, falling seven weeks after the Passover. And what happened on that day? Well, that was when the law was given through Moses on Sinai, offering God's instructions for the newly redeemed nation of Israel. Now, both of these background concepts seem to be significant for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on this particular Pentecost. First of all, when the Spirit was poured out, Peter preached with power, and 3,000 were added to the church and baptized in one day. This was the first fruits of the growth of the church. It was a sign that the harvest of souls for Christ had begun, and it was a foretaste of a greater harvest to come, a spiritual application of that physical truth that Pentecost celebrated. But secondly, Pentecost was also reminiscent of Sinai, which had association with wind, fire, and voices. We hear that in Hebrews 12. And recall two great Old Testament prophecies about the coming new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The Old Testament prophets linked the pouring out of the spirit in the new covenant with the writing of the law on the hearts of God's people. What had been given in external form on tablets through Moses at Sinai was now internalized by the Holy Spirit. And so we see the appropriateness of Pentecost as the day on which the Spirit was poured out upon Christ's church as the first fruits of a spiritual harvest and as the Spirit produced internalization of the law of God. And Pentecost marks a new phase in the ministry of Christ. In his earthly ministry, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism and begins announcing the kingdom of God. And now he has ascended. And in his heavenly ministry, Christ's kingship has been demonstrated by his resurrection and his ascension. And now he baptizes his church with the Holy Spirit so they can announce his kingship 
and work to build his kingdom. Jesus' ministry began with the Holy Spirit coming down on him from above. And likewise, the church's ministry begins on Pentecost with the Holy Spirit coming down from above upon her. And the Holy Spirit came to the church to stay. John 14, 16. Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Often in the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon someone for a specific purpose for a limited time, but then withdrawing, even sometimes upon unbelievers. But here the Holy Spirit is promised upon the church forever. One of the reasons we don't expect to experience all the phenomena of Pentecost on an ongoing basis is that those phenomena announced the one-time pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church. Now we see also in the book of Acts that there are several other times as the gospel goes forth that there are sort of mini Pentecosts that take place. Uh, asserting the truth of the apostolic message. And we do sometimes hear in history of the gospel going to some place where it had never been known, and there are sometimes some miraculous spiritual things that take place. But since the Spirit has never left the church, there is no need for another ongoing universal Pentecost. The Spirit who came at Pentecost came to stay. And that brings us fourthly to purpose. The Holy Spirit came upon the church in an amazing way at Pentecost. Why? Well, Jesus had spoken of the purpose of the Spirit's coming when he promised it. John 15, 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit would witness to the disciples about Jesus so they could then bear witness to others about Jesus. And that is exactly what we hear Jesus preparing the disciples for in Acts 1.8 when he says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And after that happens, because that has happened, with that empowering, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The primary purpose of the pouring out of the Spirit upon the church was so that she would bear witness to the kingship of Christ and thus be used as an instrument in the building up of his kingdom. By proclaiming the gospel, the church is continuing the kingdom work that Jesus began. So it's clear that the Holy Spirit was not given merely to provide personal spiritual experiences. Now, he does that sometime, and we can be glad of that. Sometimes uh, you, will be, you will be so convinced of, of, of God's presence with you, and that can be a blessing of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the primary reason that he came. He does many things in lives of believers. He writes the law on our hearts and empowers us to keep it. He illuminates the scriptures for us so that we may grow in understanding. You know that word illuminate, it means to to shine a light. And apart from the spirit working within us, the scriptures would be dark to us. We wouldn't understand them. And you can can find this in many very otherwise intelligent people around the world who have just blindness when it comes to the spiritual truths of scripture. Why is that? 
It's not because they're just intellectually inferior. It's because they don't have the Spirit working that illuminating work within them. And the Spirit produces fruit in our lives that can be evident to all. The fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit intercedes for us in prayer, and the Spirit encourages and assures us. Now, these are wonderful things, and we should give thanks for them. But don't think that the Holy Spirit came only to give you exciting personal spiritual experiences. That's the kind of idea we hear sometimes today under the broad term, spirituality. Many Christians and non-Christians alike often view spirituality as a pursuit of hyper-privatized, inward-looking experiences. Let's do religion and see what's in it for us. All the Holy Spirit does in our lives equips us to be part of Christ's outward-focused, kingdom-building purpose. And this is why he sent the Holy Spirit to the church on Pentecost. And I would ask you, are you looking for purpose in life? Well, here it is. Find your part to play in the building of Christ's kingdom on the earth. That's purpose. Well, how can you do this? Well, several things. First of all, rejoice in God's grace shown to you in Jesus and rest in your Savior's love for you. This is the gospel foundation for anything you seek to do in kingdom service. Paul wrote in Romans 8, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When it comes to service in Christ's kingdom, we need to recognize that these are not human works that we do on our own. These are not ways in which we seek to earn some merit with God. The first thing we need to be grounded in is the fact that through our faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit assures us that we are children of God. And in fact, our assurance of our salvation and the joy that can flow through that is one of the greatest witnesses we can have to a watching world that is filled with anxiety, despair, and hopelessness. And so we need to rejoice in God's grace and live in light of it. But then we will seek in gratitude to respond to what God has done to us. We walk with him in obedience to his revealed will in Scripture and the law he has written on our hearts. We worship him, viewing worship as the greatest privilege that we have in life. We find opportunities to serve and use gifts in Christ's church and outside the church in the name of Jesus. We build bridges in relationships in order to share the gospel meaningfully with those around us. We pray for and financially support Christian ministries and missionaries who are about the task of spreading the gospel, that task that began in a powerful way on that first way of day of Pentecost. And again, these are not things we do in our own strength. They're things we can only do because the Holy Spirit has not left the church, because the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you and within me. And in these ways and more, we can find purpose in the purpose Jesus revealed at Pentecost. But there is a problem. There is a problem if you engage in this purpose, and that is that you can't do it. That is, you can't do it on your own. You need power, our fifth P, power. In and of ourselves, we are powerless to accomplish Christ's kingdom purposes. He sent the Holy Spirit to empower us for his service. 
Again, Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Ephesians 3, 14 through 16. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. Strengthened with might through his Spirit. It is only by the power supplied by the Holy Spirit that you can find your place of service in Christ's kingdom. You can't simply do the kingdom work of Christ in the power of the flesh. It can't be done. Now, you can stay very busy. You can run programs. But truly spiritual work can only be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. And ministry will only be blessed as the Spirit blesses it. The Lord poured out His Spirit on the church at Pentecost, and the Spirit has never left the church. But we each have a responsibility to yield ourselves to the Spirit on a daily basis. This is why Paul can issue a command. This is a command in Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Spirit. Like the believers in Jerusalem prior to Pentecost, we do need to pray for the Spirit, for the Spirit to work powerfully in our lives as individual believers and in the church as a body. And we can grieve the Spirit by our sin. We can hinder His work by our unbelief. We need to pray the promises like those early Christians did and wait expectantly for the Spirit to work in and through us, longing for it and yielding ourselves to the Spirit daily. I believe in the Holy Spirit. This is what we will soon confess in the creed as we do each week in worship. But are we speaking the truth when we say these words? I believe in the Holy Spirit. Francis Schaeffer once posed a question that can help us in this regard. He said, suppose tomorrow God removed from Scripture all references to prayer and the Holy Spirit. We have everything else, but no mention of prayer or the Holy Spirit. Would you live any differently than you do today? If you knew nothing about prayer, if you know nothing about the Holy Spirit, would you live any differently? That is to say, does your professed belief in the Holy Spirit work itself out practically in your life? Do you recognize your weakness and spiritual inability to obey the Lord? Does this drive you to your knees praying for the power of the Spirit in your life? Do you cling to the promises of God and hold them before Him in prayer? Do you long to find your place in the expansion of the kingdom of God on earth? Are you offering yourself in the service of King Jesus, praying for the leading and empowering of the Holy Spirit? It is easy to say every week, I believe in the Holy Spirit without living a life that shows your dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, if this congregation, Covenant Presbyterian Church, is to move forward together in kingdom ministry, we will need to experience spirit-wrought unity, spirit-gifted power, and spirit-directed purpose. Let us be people of Pentecost. Let us be Pentecostal. Presbyterians. Let us believe the promise of the Spirit. 
Let us pray for the power of the Spirit. And let us commit ourselves to the Spirit's purpose of building up Christ's kingdom by bearing witness to our King. What might the Lord do through covenant if we were more and more truly Pentecostal Presbyterians?